This is Talking Beats, the podcast where dynamic and compelling people share their lives, their work, and of course, their favorite music. Welcome. I'm Daniel Melchuk. On today's program, we're speaking with actress and narrator January Lavoie. The four-time winner of the Audi Awards, in 2013 she was named Audiobook Narrator of the Year by Publishers Weekly. In addition to her work with audiobooks, her voice has been featured on major national campaigns for Dannon, Home Depot, and United Healthcare. I'm happy to have her here, January Lavoie. Welcome. Thank you so much. Narration, voiceover, how do you get to this point? I understand how you become an actress. It's difficult, mm-hmm. very difficult. <laughs> As someone in the performing arts, I understand it's very difficult. But this is more niche. Uh, talk about how you go from acting to narrating and, and when you first realized that perhaps your voice would have its own existence sort of separate from <laughs> your physical being. Sure. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, actually, because as actors, I'm sure, you know, music performers, we're always looking for this integration of, you know, the voice and the thought and the body. And it is kind of a a really different, its own sort of skill set and way of way of expressing. So I, as you said, started as an actor. I went to graduate school, was classically trained in theater. And when I finished graduate school, moved to New York and got an agent and started working in television and regional theater all over the country and then off-Broadway and Broadway and really came to my voiceover career through my stage career. I was doing an August Wilson play, Two Trains Running, off-Broadway around, I think it was 2007. And uh, there were a couple of other actors in the show who were repped by the same agency, the same voiceover department of Innovative Artists. And so the agents came to see the show, and I met them afterwards at the bar and sort of just struck up conversation and friendship without really thinking about having them represent me. And one of them, who is a dear friend and continues to be my agent to this day, Sherry Hoffman, asked me who repped me for a voiceover. And I said, oh, I don't, I don't have representation. That's not, not work that I do. And she said, oh, come in, have a meeting. Let's see. I think you're great. You know, I saw you perform on stage. And, you know, I, I think we could, we could get something going here. So I went in and I had a meeting and they sent me out on an audition. And I booked the first one, which was a, a commercial and a, a demo for an advertising agency for a commercial. And we sort of went from there. And I spent a couple of years in that realm of doing the commercial voices and transitioned into narration around 2009, maybe, when I had a, she had an audition for a, a series of books. And I had never really listened to an audiobook since I was a child. I didn't really know it was a a job you could have, certainly a full-time job you could have. When I auditioned for that first book, again, the sort of director-producer in the room said, I I think you've got something here. I think you you really, uh, you have an affinity for this. And so I booked that gig, and that's how it all began. So did it ever cross your mind when this agent came up to you in the bar and said, who represents you? You sound really good. Was it something really foreign to you? Or, or did you think, oh, yeah, I, I knew I had a great voice. I was just waiting for someone to come along and say so. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. I had never thought about doing really voice work um, as a career. 
you know, at that time, things have things have changed so much in the online space with distribution and cable and now streaming networks. That moment was sort of the tail end of when actors in New York and Los Angeles used to make their money, a lot of their money, off of commercials before everything started streaming. And so they were very, commercials were very desirable gigs in the, you know, 80s, 90s, even in the, the early aughts. And so there was a lot of, of energy around pursuing those jobs as ways to, as my agent said, support our theater habits, which do not pay us very well. And so at that time, I had maybe given thought to trying to find a commercial agent to get me on screen for commercials, but I had never thought about the, the sort of niche of just doing the voice part, which I have to tell you is just so much better. You can do it in your pajamas. It's fabulous. So <laughs> that was kind of a, a whole new idea to me and a, a new way of thinking, and it's really shaped a lot about my career since then. How much do you have to study the book itself? I know you read the book before you make the recording, but in terms of going deeply into the characters, I'm looking at a long list of books. I mean, you've done hundreds of books, but everything from Harlan Coben, Missing You, to Marsha Clark, to James Patterson, everything in between. What is the sort of method in which you go in? Because when you do a Shakespeare play, I imagine it's a different sort of thing. And of course, there, there's a physicality. You're probably not in your pajamas when you're on stage in a Shakespeare or when you're acting in Law and Order. So so when you really know that the audio is the only thing carrying you through, is there sort of a bigger pressure weighing on the impetus to really get it right? You know, it's really much more, I would, I would say it's much more about being extraordinarily present than it is about as much rigorous preparation. And there is preparation, but the preparation is in service to being able to be full and spontaneous in the moment. You know, for certain books, you know, I've done, you know, a great amount of nonfiction as well that involves a lot of complicated pronunciations or definitions. I, one of the books I did sort of early on in my career was the um, biography of Barack Obama's mother called A Singular Woman. And, you know, she did all of her doctoral work in Indonesia, which is how he ended up living there as a child. And so we had to call, you know, the embassy in New York and get someone to help us pronounce properly hundreds of Indonesian words. So there can be very technical preparation uh, for nonfiction books like that. For fiction books, I'm often dealing with, you know, anywhere from 20 to 100 distinct characters. They can have different voices. They can have different accents, dialects, economic backgrounds, all sorts of things, speech impediments, all kinds of things, ages. So there's no real practical way if I were going to prepare every single voice in a book as as extensively as we do for, say, a theater piece, where we have many weeks of, you know, eight hours a day, rehearsal six days a week, we have dialect coaches, we have directors, we have, you know, all these resources. With a book, it's just me in the booth working my way through from start to finish. And so you have to have a level of confidence about what you bring as an actor to the book and that your ability to inhabit those different voices will not fail you in the moment. Um, I try very hard when I'm reading the book myself, which I generally only get to do one time. You know, I'm lucky if I get a book three to four weeks in advance. And so if, let's say it's 400 pages, I have to prep those 400 pages before I then go in the studio for four or five days and narrate it. To be able to do that extensive preparation just isn't possible. So I have to trust myself, and I have to bring a sense of humanity for each of those characters 
with me. And generally, I trust the author to have done that work for me. When I'm reading the book myself, I hear the voices. I hear them in my head. And I trust that that's who those people are meant to be. So I just sort of try to boldly go forward from there. So you put a lot of trust in the author. Let's say you have a book that you're not connecting with. Do you still do it? Or is it sort of you, you have a big stack of books and the authors are there for all of them and you decide? Or, or are you forced to connect with books and characters maybe you're not so keen on? Because of the time it would take me to read a book before I decide whether or not I'm going to do it, it's kind of impossible. So we get a description of the book. We get the, you know, the author's information so we can, you know, we can look and see, you know, how does this author write? Is this topic of interest to me? But ultimately, you're saying yes before you're getting to read the book. So sometimes that's a little tricky. Generally speaking, though, if I've said yes to a book and I don't connect with it, I do have a sort of practice that I engage in, which is so of this, you know, modern internet connected world, which is that if it's not a debut novel, I can go online and find the fan community of that author or of that series or, you know, and I read what they connect to, what the fans connect to. And for me, that gives me a window into understanding my job sort of from a more technical perspective. If I can't fully connect to it from an emotional perspective, I can at least say, okay, this is what the people who love this person's work love about it. So that's what I need to engage with. And that's what I need to elevate in order to give them the experience that they're hoping for. Because ultimately, of course, the audiobook is in service to the listener. You mentioned before that you hadn't really listened to an audiobook since you were a kid. What do you think the difference in experiences between someone who reads the book and someone who hears the book read by January Lavoie? People learn and absorb information in different ways. Part of what makes me a skilled narrator is that I'm a very visual learner, which is why I didn't listen to a lot of audiobooks. I like to absorb information through my eyes from the page. But there's a whole universe of folks out there who prefer to absorb information through their ears. Oral learners, you know, have a very different experience than I do of of listening to books. And so, you know, for me, it's like trying to, uh, we call it sometimes theater of the mind. So I'm really trying to paint that picture in, in deep detail for the listener, because I'm also aware, and this is sort of a foundational principle of narrating audiobooks that I was taught by a, a great director, producer that I've worked with a ton named Kevin Thompson. He taught me the first book we did together that, you know, the, the sort of prime directive of making audiobooks is that the, the listener never has to press stop and rewind, that they never have to say, wait, what? So that our, our job is that, that level of clarity. It's as if they were going to press play at the beginning and then nine hours later press stop and have gotten the whole story. And so, you know, I think about that experience of giving them that full sweep, almost cinematically, but through the listened experience. So that's my hope. Whereas, you know, for people who love audiobooks, I think many of them express to me that they find words so dry on the page. And so I'm just trying to make sure when I'm narrating that I'm painting with all the colors that the ear (laughs) wants to hear to mix my metaphors. That's how I think of it. I wonder if you ever worry about doing too much. Do you ever worry about getting in the way, about exaggerating? There must be a very fine line here between bringing it to life and making it the January Lavoie. You know, as a trained actor, you learn that the words are, you know, the text just like you would as a musician, right? The, the, the notes as they are written on the page, that's, that's the map. We have to adhere to the map, and that is the written word that the author has given us. 
it's again sort of about trusting that now that I have a body of work out there, when an author is looking for me or an audiobook producer or publisher is looking for me, they know what I do. And so I can sort of at this point in my career kind of lean into what I know I do best and do that without having to worry too much about gauging my own sort of levels of performance. At the same time, I almost always have the privilege of working with directors as well. And so I don't have to keep that eye trained on myself because they're doing it for me. Oftentimes, you know, we'll have a discussion where the the director will say, can you bring that up a little or that's a bit too much? And I'll say, well, this is in service to something that I I see happening later in the book and the arc of this character. And they'll either say, oh, sure, I hear that. Or they'll say, no, he did it to me a little bit less. And in that case, I defer to my director. They're the outside eye. But for the most part, I think of the narrator as like the lens of a camera. The lens of the camera can affect the sharpness. It can affect the texture of the photograph, but it should never obscure anything that's in the field that's trying to be photographed. That's how I think of myself. You should be able to see right through me. You should never be thinking of it as a January Lavoie production. You should be able to see and hear right through me to the characters that the and the story that the author wants you to, to see. Let's talk about the different facets of your life because you've done theater, you've done Broadway, Off-Broadway, TV, One Life to Live, uh, Blue Bloods, Law and Order, things like that. And of course, lots of books. What gives you the most pleasure as sort of a person of the stage slash a person of the microphone? I think that, I, you know, I started doing theater when I was a, a little kid. And there is something about that experience. And particularly in this moment of all of our lives when we are challenged with, you know, the idea of, of, of gathering together is sort of, you know, for our own preservation and health and safety, it's something we can't do. And the mourning and loss that the theater community is experiencing right now, and not just the people who make theater, but the people who love theater and the people who attend theater are experiencing the depth of this loss that's really quite profound. And in all the talk about essential jobs and essential workers, I've had so many conversations with people who love theater, who make theater, and who say, it is essential to me and I can't have it and it's painful. And so I do think that there is something incredibly special about theater and it holds a very special place in my heart. That being said, I have never been more grateful for my career as an audiobook narrator and have received so much correspondence from so many people really in different parts of the world about how right now being able to sit down and, you know, put in their earbuds and listen to a story that can transport them away from some of the truly awful and and scary and challenging things we're experiencing now, how much that means to them. And so even though for me, the sort of communion of being able to come together in a shared space and experience theater and breathe the same air that the performer's do is critical. It's it's also this moment has taught me a lot about the power of a story well told, no matter how it is told, and the importance of being able to transport people from where they are, perhaps to somewhere they might, somewhere else they might wish to be. I find there to be a great irony, a sort of sad irony in that when people are down, what they need the most is theater and music and community and that's not allowed everybody is sort of searching for new ways to find that be it a cellist posting videos on instagram or someone putting on a recording of you reading a book how do you think people will come back to quote normal life 
if at all, when I hear the phrase, let's get back to normal, I am very skeptical. I don't believe getting back to normal will happen. I think there will be some sort of a new normal. What do you see happening? Yeah, I think about that every day, what it means to get back to normal. And I tend to agree. I don't think we'll go back to normal, if only because we have a limited capacity to forget things that we've learned and lessons we've learned. And I think that the memory, perhaps the the scar, the mental scar of this experience, even if, let's say, a vaccine appeared tomorrow, I don't think that would leave us so readily. I think that traditions will change. You know, will we ever go back to handshaking casually? I doubt it. I doubt anyone who lived through this will. I don't know. And I have a lot of fear about what that will mean for live performance and the sort of rituals of gatherings, you know, be they, you know, religious observations, grief, rituals, art. But I also think by the fact of there being essential things to us, our rituals, our art, our gatherings, we will find a way to make them possible again. They may not resemble the things we got used to, the things we were raised with, the things we taught ourselves to believe were the way to have those things or do those things. But I absolutely believe societies will find a way to reincorporate these things that are essential. And that kind of excites me because I think, gosh, we all thought we had it down. We all thought we knew how it was done. And now (laughs) the world and biology and everything else is saying, well, we're not going to be able to do it that way. So what is that going to mean? And particularly in the hands of artists, I'm sort of charged up by the idea of how we'll adapt. You teach. You've been teaching at Emory University for almost a year. What does teaching do in terms of enriching your professional activities? And how does one teach a craft like acting? In terms of how it's enriched me, I mean, anyone who's ever taught who loves it and has an affinity for it would say, I think, that in order to communicate the thing to other people, you have to understand it and articulate it in a way that perhaps you never had to to yourself. The voice in your own head sort of has all its own shortcuts and vocabulary and understanding for how you do a thing. I don't, I don't sit down at the first rehearsal of a play anymore and think, okay, now this is the part where I highlight my lines and this is the part where I start to think about the physicality and this is the part, you know, it's not. It's, an, it's a fully internalized process for me at this point after 20 years to have to stop myself, slow myself down and go back and analyze those things again so that I can communicate them to my students has been incredibly enriching for me as a theater artist, you know, doing television as a voice actor, all of it comes back to these sort of fundamentals, which I've been shortcutting for a long time. And so to be able to rethink and reanalyze process is a huge gift, I think, for any artist. And to your question about how do you teach acting? Well, as you said, it's the end of my first year of teaching full time. So I'm still figuring it out. But what I have learned that I feel is something very fundamental to the way that I personally teach acting is that the question I constantly pose to my students is what works for you? Because, and you'd know this also as a musician, someone can teach you a technique, but every body is different. Every mind-body connection is different. So I can teach you how I do it, but if that is ill-fitting on your body and your mind and your mind-body connection and your emotions, it will not work for you. So it's this sort of, there's this duality 
of giving what I think of more as an example or a template, but then really encouraging and, and pushing my students to figure out how to reform the template for their own mind and body, which is very challenging work. And I think especially at the undergraduate level, a lot of people have not really been told yet at that point in their lives, figure it out how it works best for you. It's absolutely thrilling when they engage it and they get it. So that's been a real joy for me to explore. I'm wondering if you can paint a picture for us of the recording of a book itself. It's you in a box, you in a booth with a microphone, you have the book. How much do you do at a time? What kind of breaks do you take? Tell us about the, the, the process. The producers stop you occasionally. Yeah, so the typical process, uh, it's about a seven-hour day. I go into the studio from 10 to 5 with about an hour for lunch. I record straight through. So I go in, I sit down, I have all of my supplies, which for me are, you know, lots of water, a tube of chapstick, which is indispensable because one's lips will badly chap after a few hours of constant talking, cough drops, various sprays, nose sprays, throat sprays, just in case, and start with chapter one and and read. And I always have an engineer who is there following along in the script, listening for technical glitches, popped peas, any slurring sound, missed words, etc. And then a director who is either physically present or remote over Skype or what have you. And they're listening for performance, also listening for, you know, flubs or missed words, but more sort of thinking about the book holistically. Oftentimes we'll stop and have a discussion about a thing and I'll say, you know, when I read this the first time I thought this, but now I'm not sure that it's not that. What do you think? And so it's really nice to have someone else who can also, you know, give feedback sort of instantaneously so that we don't lose momentum. The director is also responsible for verifying pronunciations, being in contact with the author if, you know, there's names that we can't find, you know, a name that the writer invented that we can't find online to figure out a pronunciation, that sort of thing. If it's a series, you know, there's more than just me having the historical memory of how I did it a year before, but the director can provide clips, sound clips from, you know, the previous book or voice references, as we call them. Despite the fact that it is just me sitting in the booth performing, it is in many ways very collaborative. And I always say... (laughs) There would be no audiobooks, but for our post-production teams, our editors and our QC and all the people who make it sound as if I just opened my mouth and said chapter one and then nine hours later said the end and there were no mistakes because that is definitely not the case. I personally usually record about 90 minutes and then take about a 15-minute break and then another 90 minutes. So. That's how I do. Let's talk about music a little bit. The name of the show is Talking Beats. Uh, Music must play an important role in your life. It does for most people, especially people of the stage. It's funny that you would ask me that today because with everything that's going on in the world right now, I find such solace in music. And, you know, everything that I do in an audiobook is rhythmic, uh, deals with tempo, pace, structure, So I think that there's just a sort of inherent musicality to the work that I do. But in terms of my own inspiration and love for music, I was out this afternoon walking around my neighborhood. I felt I couldn't breathe. Um, I felt, wow, I can't breathe. And I am a biracial black woman. And uh, with everything that's going on in our country right now and really around the world, 
I find that some days the only thing that can bring me back to a place of calm is music. And today it was Nina Simone. It was amazing how transformative it was, not just to listen to her sing, to listen to her play, to listen to her inhabit her beliefs, her traumas, her trials, her journey, but also to listen to her breathe while she performed. And so I look to music and musicians, I think oftentimes without even realizing it, and I'm looking to their breath to help me breathe again. I think I probably do that a lot more than I realize. Do you think being a biracial black woman right now in the spring of 2020, do you think that background is strengthened by some of the great black, particularly female musicians that we look back at Sarah Vaughan, Marian Anderson, Leontine Price, Kathleen Battle, Jesse Norman, there's a whole amazing array of black female singers in the classical and operatic and, of course, other genres. Do those people give you strength? There is no question, I think, for me personally, but I do feel as if I can speak for many black women in this moment. There is no question that we would be too exhausted to forge ahead if we did not have the examples the voices, the stories of the great black women artists who came before us. Whether that is, you know, Oleantine Price or a Toni Morrison, or obviously they are legion, writers, painters, sculptors, actors, musicians. But there is no question that there is a spiritual strength that we all draw from being able to regard the art that these women made. And we are always aware, we are always aware as modern black women that everything we do and everything we accomplish, whatever our foremothers did, they did it under far worse circumstances than we did. We are so aware of that every day. And so for me, it gives me strength to know that if they could perform to such heights, such glorious works of art in their time, then I can go on. I can continue. I can create. I know I can because they did. I just want to add one one musician I didn't mention who's who's not a female, but it was his favorite song. And when I watch Louis Armstrong sing Blueberry Hill, mm. he said late in life it was his favorite of all his songs. And you see there's a live video of him singing it in Berlin in 1965. And there's a, a passion and a burning intensity, not just through the phrases, but almost every note is searing. And you could see the, the sweat pouring down his face and the imprint on the upper lip of the mouthpiece of the trumpet. Uh, it's one of the most magical four or five minutes I've ever seen. And I've been going to that for inspiration and hope almost daily over the past few weeks. It's an unbelievable video, even by his standards. I'll have to check it out. I've never seen it. January Lavoie, I think you have offered a great measure of hope to a lot of people. I think they'll take your words, whether you wrote them or not. In this case, you did very seriously. And I indeed thank you. I thank you. Please stay safe and well. You've been listening to Talking Beats. The music discussed today is available in a playlist on my Spotify or anywhere you get your music. The original music is composed by Ronald Markham. The producer is Doug Christian. I'm Daniel Nelchuk. See you next time.